and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Liz Truss is the new Prime Minister. After a flight to Balmoral to meet the Queen and a drive through London in lashing rain, Truss stepped straight from the Prime Ministerial car to the podium outside number 10 and set out her vision for the country. So what should we expect from this country's 56th Prime Minister and the third woman to have held the office? How will she turn her campaign pledges into reality? And with the reshuffle rumbling on, what do Truss's ministerial appointments tell us about her priorities and how she plans to govern? We're back in the IFG studio to try and make sense of a whirlwind 48 hours in British politics and just the latest instalment of what has been a dramatic, unpredictable and anything but normal half decade or so. Senior fellow Kath Haddon is back from a solid day of broadcasting from College Green outside Parliament yesterday. Mm-hmm. Hi, Kath. Hello. Have you recovered? I'm knackered, but then I always just think, well, I'm knackered. What it must it be like if you were <laughs> up actually doing the reshuffle until God knows what time last night? So um, I shouldn't really complain, should I? And we're joined down the line by Giles Wilkes, IFG Senior Fellow and former Number 10 Advisor. Hi, Giles. Uh, hi there, Hannah. How are things? Yeah, yeah, we're all good. We're having to go here, IFG. Um, and I'm delighted we are joined by Salma Shah, a former special advisor at four government departments and now a partner at Portland Communications. Hi, Salma. Hello. How was yesterday for you? Um, underwhelming and exciting all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel a pang of jealousy or nostalgia when you're watching a reshuffle take place? Absolutely not. Um, it's slightly triggering. I will <laughs> confess to that. But, you know, then you remember that you're actually on the outside. And then, of course, you remember that this team of people is supposed to be making decisions on uh, about your life <laughs> sort of the trajectory of your life and then you start panicking again so an emotional I, roller coaster i saw various spads on on twitter yesterday offering careers advice to those uh, uh others about to be ejected from government it's pretty brutal isn't it the sort of sudden departure yeah it is but i think it's always sort of couched um with the fact that uh you know, it's a great platform and it's a huge springboard for a lot of people. So for however long you do it, you know, you accept the brutality. But actually the, the payoff for, for one's career, if you're going to be cynical about it, isn't half bad. So, you know, shouldn't feel too sorry for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, um, I thought the most extraordinary thing, I spent the previous sort of 48 hours saying, well, you know, it can be a difficult changeover in number 10 because, you know, one team are going out, the other team are coming back in. But at least this time they've got a few more hours. And and also, you know, Truss and Boris Johnson, they're not so far apart, so maybe it won't be so brutal. And then you saw reference to the email that went out sort of straight after Boris Johnson had left saying people needed to clear their desk by 9.30 and emailing all the people that were suddenly out. And yeah, it's still pretty brutal. So let's start with the speech. Salma, can you give us some insight? How many people write these sorts of set piece speeches? How long ago will that speech have been written? So I think actually that varies and it varies for sort of who the person is, how much help they need. So I can't imagine Tony Blair needed kind of an army of speechwriters, probably had a very good sense, you know, having been in advocacy before. Um, I, I think there were probably a number of people who think, started thinking about it about three weeks ago in terms of what she was going to say on the steps of Downing Street, as they call it, even though there's only one step. Um uh, but what came out didn't look like it was the product of sort of weeks and weeks of work because it was short to the point, quite clipped, didn't have a lot of the kind of emotion or, you know, the tone, setting a tone um, that you've seen with previous prime ministers. And I think that's probably true to her. Also, she's not she's not a great speaker. She's not one of the great communicators. So um, it's sort of probably it's it's helpful for her to 
to lay out the fact that she's not going to be this great sort of orator. Um, and actually, to be honest, Boris Johnson really wasn't that great an orator either. But And he exposed himself, I think, by trying to do these big moments. So um, I think it doesn't. It didn't really give us any substance, but stylistically, I thought it was interesting. But you do know that. I mean, somebody suddenly on the journey back had the wheeze of you know weathering the storm and <laughs> all of that with the heavens open. Whether or not that was in the car in the last few few minutes, yeah, where inexplicably they suddenly went over the river, went down Lambeth, and then came back over the river. There probably was very good reason for that, avoiding whatever traffic or protesters or, or whatever, but it did sort of feel like, oh, let's just give ourselves a few more minutes to make sure the rain's <laughs> pass and, you know, quickly making a few last minute changes to the speech or something. Catherine, what stood out for you in the speech? Um, I mean, there were a few, you know, choice phrases, aspiration, nation, you know, always a bit of rhythm or, or, or whatever gives a, gives some substance to the speech. I thought, you know, she she went uh, tackled the Boris Johnson uh, issue early on. Uh, I thought consequential was probably a pretty um, good way of describing uh, Boris Johnson's premiership and um, safe ground. I mean, we've talked a lot about the need to transition from facing the party to facing the nation. And in terms of uh, not backtracking on her decision not to sort of criticise Boris Johnson, uh, that did the job, but it wasn't, you know, um, so praiseworthy that that perhaps it stood out for a lot of people. I think, you know, everyone is always looking for policy substance in these speeches wrongly because mm. um, this isn't when they, you know, you can think back to Theresa May's, you know, there was a lot in there where she was trying to sort of say the direction of travel and very little of that happened. So uh, I take with a pinch of salt the three um, priorities that she set out, which then when I read the speech seemed to be a list of about sort of 20 or 30 things. So um, again, sort of difficult to think about the priorities but there were other key moments in the day where you saw some sort of hints about what the priorities are going to be and just to fall directly into that that trap then Giles what I mean what did we learn about Liz Truss's uh, economic thinking she started with tax didn't she and only then went on to energy bills which some people might have expected to to go the other way around yes which is interesting maybe that's a sign maybe that is a sign that she said look under what Underneath all of these recent small crises, we're going to have this big, big new vision. I, I would contradict what some people are saying about continuity with Johnson. Definitely there's a sort of stylistic tribal continuity. that Some of the same uh, loyalists are, are staying in purely because of their loyalty, you might say, which is a very Johnson thing. But in terms of her economic approach and her view of what conservatism is, I think she marks a really quite a, an abrupt break. I mean, a bigger break, I think, than possibly we have seen since the coalition was formed. She really does believe that the reason we haven't seen a very good economic uh, result for the last decade or so, notwithstanding all of the crises that are here, is that we haven't really, really, really tried the proper conservative approach. And we saw the hints of what she really means throughout the leadership campaign and in the speech. One, we need to cut taxes so that it's finally worth putting an effort in in this economy. In other words, because of marginal tax rates being so high, people aren't investing, nobody bothers working, we're not aspiring enough. That's an absolutely classic early Thatcherite view of the world, with the awkward caveat that when Thatcher came in, there were higher rate taxes of 83% and really, really high swinging corporate taxes. And, um, and the other one is that we're continuously stopping ourselves from doing and building great things because of rules and regulations and planning law, which is 
a really important feature of her thought and that of the whole tribe of people around her, like the sort of Adam Smith Institute people, the Institute for Economic Affairs people, which is that planning rules and tiresome uh, regulations preventing people from doing entrepreneurial activity are the reason that we haven't grown hard enough. And I think she's hinted at a lot of that. So what they're hoping is that it's a momentary diversion into massive state support and interference in the market through the energy price uh, measures they're going to need to bring in in the next few weeks. But that's a big one and done measure. And then they move on to this low tax uh, deregulatory approach to growing the economy, which is incredibly different from what Boris Johnson believes in. That's really interesting. And she also, I think, I think there were indications that she she wanted to move the the discussion on to also longer term solutions to the energy crisis. She talked about getting spades in the ground yeah. to solve. What did you think that meant, Giles? I mean, I, I, that was the first phrase that really intrigued me. I mean, I noticed that she talked about getting been in working again, which seemed to be just a, a weird phrase to use. But really, the getting spades in the ground in order to ensure our energy costs are low, I, it can only mean one of two or three things. One it means drill, baby, drill. It means that we need to be getting more hydrocarbons out of the ground because that's as far as I see what's in the ground. It's got to be hydrocarbons. So that ground source heat pumps. Yeah, yeah I have a feeling it's not geothermal. Improving our gardens. And the other slightly bleaker interpretation is it's uh, coal, which it, with rather unthatched right view on coal. But it, I think, I worry with it is just actually a sort of a verbal slip that she can't somehow connected everything together in the weird, in a weird way. And actually it wasn't intended yeah. to come out that way. That's actually my, my best guess. Cause it just doesn't sort of work as a sentence formulation. I think, I think Giles has hit on something there. And I think also Kath, what you said about aspiration nation, it's all slightly a bit sort of cliche, isn't mm. it? It's yeah. not, um, it doesn't really have uh, sort of that depth of thought. It's just, you know, things, buzzwords that have sort yeah. of been around for a long time that she's clinging to. And, it's interesting because, um, yes, you know, everything's going to be poured over with, with so much more scrutiny, so much more detail. So it's going to be really critical what she now says and what, what we then read into it. I just want to go back on something on the ideology point. Um, I think, you know, politics as usual is, is obviously facing a crisis. And it's really interesting if you look at the four prime ministers, the four conservative prime ministers, you had Cameron in this sort of very consensual, very sort of middle of the road, heir to Blair coalition with the Lib Dems position, who was, you know, slowly sort of pushed to the right, you know, over issues like Brexit. Then you have Theresa May, who did something really odd, which was it was about the good that government can do. So she sort of opened the door to bigger state intervention. And it's where Cameron was going, you know, Osborne sort of parking his tanks on Labour's lawn and, you know, trying to do a little bit more in terms of, you know, uh, state spending after years of austerity. And then you had Boris Johnson, who just couldn't, there was no ideology there. And it was kind of big infrastructure programmes, but also a culture war and, you know, whatever it was, and it was just a mismatch. And now you've got Liz Truss, who is trying to sort of revert to a very purist conservative view and it's going to be interesting to see how the electorate reacts to that. If she does, as Giles says, kind of big energy policy one and done, and then tries to move on into sort of high growth, low regulation, a low tax economy, um, whether that is th that is something that is um, received well by the public. Because it is a very big test, actually, for conservatism. 
And what does a centre-right party look like? And this is something that is a problem all over the world at the moment, I think, for centre-right political parties, is that when populations are asking you to do more, what is the role of the state? And if this fails, that will be a really interesting ideological test, I think, for centre-right. Because the other interesting thing, I think it's a really interesting analysis, Salma, and the other thing is, of course, over that same period you describe, we've had, uh, you know, we've, we've we've had we've had coronavirus, and now we've got the energy crisis, both of which are pushing, Indeed. you know, the, the the population to think actually state intervention is is necessary and good. But also, I mean, you know, taking that starting position, yes, that was Cameron's sort of, you know, core approach, perhaps, but austerity was the sort of the core of it. And, um, you know, the, the budget deficit, you know, we all had to learn those graphs, those phrases, I've managed to delete most of it from my head. But, um, but that was like central to so much of what government was doing during that time. And actually, it's quite interesting to take Hannah's point how these exogenous forces have been part of it. And yet now when that's coming to a head, you know, we've got arguably an even greater exogenous force, which is really having a massive impact on people or could have a massive impact on people's sort of daily life um, so acutely this winter if there is not state intervention. So, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just sort I of just, saying. I think with Cameron, it was, um, you know, uh, in opposition, he he and Osborne decided to match Labour's spending commitments, which, mm. which is a huge thing to get across the line because I'm old enough to remember being in the Conservative Party back then. Um, and so he, the, the financial crisis that he was faced with forced him to change his mm. his uh, tactics. And I think, you know, as a, as a result of that, a lot of the stuff that he it, it would have been his natural inclination, I think he probably wasn't able to do. But then, you know, it's the rhetoric, really. I mean, mm. what they're actually able to deliver is, you know, owning the agenda is always kind of like dependent on the talent of the individual. But um, certainly, I think that uh, all four Conservative Prime Ministers are essentially having to battle with things that are outside of their control, and they're having to retrofit their ideology mm. and narrative. And I and I don't see Liz Truss escaping that. No, she's I, not going to be any different, is she? Summer, was there anything notable you think that wasn't in the speech? Um, I mean, she could have given a little bit more sort of uh, detail on what she planned to do or, 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 or sort of where she wanted to go. I felt that it was slightly thin, you know, talking about leading as a conservative aspiration nation, all that kind of stuff. None of it meant anything. You know, levelling up was absent, but it was as kind of as um, intangible as levelling up. And I think that's the problem. It, what she said was completely intangible. And there wasn't anything or any phrases that stuck out that I thought, God, that's really relatable. God, that's been really well focus grouped or, you know, that really speaks to me or what I think a certain cohort is, is going to be. So it was really it was really that. I think there's a real lack of sort of that communicative skill that all prime ministers essentially need because the central function of prime minister is performance. And uh, something else that was missing, which slightly surprised me because I first associated her with education, is any big statement about direction on education. I don't know whether this is because we're currently in a very awkward spot where it's generally accepted that we need a lot more money for the catch-up after COVID. Uh, it's now also seen accepted that we went wrong during COVID with education and should have had people back in school much sooner. But I, I'm, I'm disappointed we haven't heard 
her think about that because she is presumed to have thought much more deeply about it. And then as Salma says, the levelling up one is a really fascinating agenda. We don't know where she's going to leave it because unlike Thatcher, who could kind of divide and rule and go for this very low tax deregulatory approach and you know leave a lot of the country worse off, but a much larger part better off and win a coalition on that. Mm. Liz Trust needs a lot of those new seats that Boris Johnson won with the promise of levelling up. And deregulation as the method for levelling up is a very odd message that insofar as any government has ever believed it, it didn't work under the Thatcherites. And so I really would love to know what they're going to do with that agenda. Uh, That's interesting, Giles. I wonder whether the, as you say, education was missing because there is more consensus around it. And what she's been focused on over the last period of the the leadership election has been very much the wedge issues where she can differentiate herself from Sunak. And so so the sort of the thinking perhaps isn't there as much yet. Yeah, I kind of think like there's a danger of reading too much into it. This, Even though she's had time to prepare for all of this, this has been a whirlwind. And even though there was a sort of 24-hour delay more than between, you know, getting the job and then that speech, um, again, lots else would have been going on. And I suspect she isn't a communicator. She mm. doesn't massively prioritise moments like that. She was more interested in actually what she was going to do, getting in the, the door, the appointment she was going to make. I think the reshuffle was more notable in terms of education because I'm not sure she has sent a strong signal there that um, education is the, the sort of big priority. Let's move on to the reshuffle. Um, Salma, you're telling us you've just filed your column for the Indy uh, with your analysis of, of the reshuffle. What do, you, what do you make of it? I thought that it's a missed opportunity, the Cabinet reshuffle, um, because she has uh, spurned unity and she's gone for loyalists, um, which you know would have been okay had her loyalists been very, very experienced to face the challenges that are coming. And, you know, lots of people, in fact, Katie Balls, um, who I know is a regular guest of yours at the IFG, wrote a great piece for The Spectator today that said, you know, from a political perspective, she's going to um, possibly regret not having, uh, you know, opposition in, in within the cabinet because they're just going to be on the backbenches. And my sort of take on it is similar, um, but focusing really on government and the machinations of Whitehall and how hard it is going to be for all these people who have now been put up to these positions with this massive lack of experience um, to be able to work quickly with Whitehall to deliver what they need to. And I think that in particular, um, alongside the fact that there's going to be possibly, if rumour is true, a new cabinet secretary really, really fills me with dread um, because you you can't have this massive sea change at the top of government in the time of crisis um, and expect people to sort of get on with it and deliver it well. You would never have a corporate that did that. You would never have business that didn't do succession planning in a better way or think about skills and development um, of those individuals that are making um, decisions. And as you know, in fact, you've talked about it and and written reports about it. There's no ministerial training. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no one that's going to hold your hand to make the decision. You have to get in there and you have to start doing stuff. And it really, really fills me with dread. Kath, is this the triumph of uh, energy and enthusiasm over experience? Um, 
Yes and no. I mean, I, I guess it's one of those, it's, it's an extraordinary situation when you've got sort of government in place for 12 years and you end up with so many big beasts on the back benches. But that is also what happens over time because you're bringing in new people. It's worth saying, I mean, at the moment with the cabinet, the way it's looking, most of those in the top jobs have com- come from elsewhere in the cabinet. The big um, mover is uh, Suella Bravman, who's gone up from attending cabinet into a higher cabinet post. So that it's not like they don't lack experience of of doing governments sort of more generally. Um, I think, you know, what Sam was talking about is there is a problem in our politics generally that, you know, people who have actually done the job for years and years, which is really what it takes to actually build up experience of being good at governments, they just move on, they leave, you know, and often they go out, get more experience of doing other things, are even wiser and, uh, you know, rarely come back into politics. So um, we do have a problem that there is the kind of, you know, constant merry-go-round of of more people need to be sort of moving on up and um, we don't really value experience, domain expertise, um, you know, understanding of government. There is still this kind of view that, you know, being the the greatest politician trumps any other skill that you might have as a politician. <laughs> um, I think it's very notable. Um, Therese Kofi is deputy prime minister and has gone to health and hasn't ended up in uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster because if you, you know, obviously a lot of talk about how they're close friends, um, you know, ideological stablemates, whatever. Um, but if you believe that Kofi is a, you know, quality person to make things happen, then you might have put her in the CDL role, kept her close to you, um, especially if she's deputy prime minister and that's meaning anything. Um, otherwise, it's just a title because health is big enough. You can't be deputising in the sense of solving problems, being a political fixer or anything like that when you're dealing with health. You need to focus on dealing with health. Um, so that puts the the sort of focus on Nadim Sahawi to be doing that kind of job. And obviously, you know, the vaccine rollout um, is the track record that everyone points to in terms of his uh, ability and so forth. But, I mean, I mentioned it earlier, you've then got appointments, Kemi Badnock going to trade, um, which, you know, is a bit notable. Um, you've got a rising star is trade really the person where place where you want somebody? Um, perhaps if you don't want them to be noticed too much, you <laughs> might put them there. Um, but that left uh, Kit Malthouse uh, going to education, and I'm nothing against Kit Malthouse, but he's not somebody who then inspires you and think, my God, he's got such a great track record in this area. And given the problems that we're talking about earlier, you know, that is somewhere where actually you can put someone and people say, wow, that's a really great appointment. They're really, you know, there are occasional appointments you put somebody in levelling up who's been really focusing on it, like Neil O'Brien. You know, those kind of appointments where people go, oh, yeah, this is a big thinker in this area. Um, So it doesn't really kind of suggest that those are the qualities that she was looking for. Giles, what's your your take um, on all this? Okay, can I make one meta point first of all? And I'd be really keen to hear Selma's view on this, but people on the outside trying to judge who is good in a cabinet office job or or, or a cabinet minister role, it's almost like it feels like a random turkey shoot to me. The the experience of being on the inside, watching people on the outside commenting on who's good or not, it's often on the basis of their media appearances. So somebody makes a terrible mistake in, in a news night interview and that's what they are and so why have we got this clown running anything and it's a totally different skill so you so often your experience in government 
particularly if you talk to a lot of civil servants, is to hear people say, actually, so-and-so, he's really good, or she's really good. They, they really engage with their minister. Like, I heard incredibly positive things from everyone who worked with Matthew Hancock, uh, Ed Davey. I, I heard really positive things about Liam Fox, for example. None of this was really ever reflected in the outside um, dialogue. That was always about their big political postures, their brand, if you like, and the really obvious sort of social media mistakes they made. Um, and it's like like um, Salma's former boss, Saj, um, he was regarded as really good at getting into the detail of things when, for example, the steel crisis hit in 2016. Here was a, a brain who could think really, really quickly. All the outside commentary was about mocking him for his Thatcherite views, and now he's having to fly back from Australia to be an intervener after all. Ha ha. But the underlying story was actually here's a guy who can really think hard and engage. So I'd be really careful about sort of quick judgments about who's good or or not until you get those sort of insights, which are really, really difficult to get. Now, for, on, on the subject of Therese Coffee, for example, my very brief experience of her was she was detailed and diligent. And if she is good at that sort of engaging with people, getting to know the right stakeholders, maybe the exact thing we want to do is have someone like her in the Department of for Health engaging with all the different parties there and really listening to them and working out what happens rather than which is an entirely different sort of skill being the go-between in a cabinet office role trying to deal with political fights between different departments. Giles let me just come back to that because I think you you make a fair point but I, I I slightly disagree in that um Okay, first of all, Therese Coffey, I think, is a notable exception. I actually like her a lot personally, and I think it's very unfair in the way that she's caricatured, and I think that is um, uh, that's, that's actually down to misogyny, in my view. Um, I think she is diligent and she's hardworking, and she had uh, she did quite well in DWP. There were lots of criticisms of her of the policies that she had to enact, but I think she was generally incredibly well-liked in the department. And also, I think uh, the new paymaster general, Edward Arger, um, did very, very well in health. Um, and he's very details orientated. So this isn't about sort of picking out individuals. This is about saying that the individuals collectively do not have the what I would think of as the requisite experience. And that is just outside of policy. It is also about the depth of uh, maturity and how you sort of deal with difficulties when you run up against a, a cabinet colleague uh, in departments, how you actually fix to get things done, because politics is an ego business. And, you know, how do, do you have faith that people can manage their emotions and manage their egos? I mean, we've just seen a really torturous, rude, terribly, um, terribly tempered uh, leadership contest. And, you know, all these briefings and things that come out. I mean, you remember Theresa May's tenure, all these briefings and this sort mm. of, you know, violent language and all of that kind of stuff. Will that be tempered? You know, that's the that's the kind of thing that I, I am also looking at, as well as sort of their skill and their experience no, in terms of I policy. Think, I think that is a really good point. And I but, do I do, but can I just, I just want to say on the media as well. Um, yes, some people can become uh, targets unfairly. Uh, of uh, media criticism. Um, I don't think that's the only way through which people view their um, work. I think that sometimes, actually, the media highlight things that you're, you're, you may not be self-aware about. And I think it's, it's quite fair to suggest that, um, you know, sometimes those criticisms, it's not necessarily about poor performances because Therese Coffey <laughs> is sort of famous for some um, terrible broadcast um, uh, appearances, uh, most notably uh, GMB with Piers Morgan. I strongly advise you to watch that clip because it's hilarious. 
Um, but it's not the sum total of what um, people judge a minister on. And I think there's a lot that goes on in Westminster and Whitehall. And you will know this as well, Giles, that, you know, people form opinions based on lots of other things that they hear and, and they do it in the round. And, you know, quite often the media's job is to distill that and communicate it. And maybe some of the best ways of illustrating it is uh, some of the media performances. Yes, I mean, I do think that's fair. I mean, the journalists I know are often very, very diligent. They study Whitehall really hard. And I'm not saying they're purely superficial, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying it can happen. It can happen that somebody just gets tarred with that particular um, public appearance. And that's how everyone goes for them quickly. But your point on experience is really, really key. I mean, I was astonished to see, I think Sam Friedman tweeted it out today, that only Liz Truss was ever in the cabinet before 2019 of the current crop and and when you look back on what astonishing potential i thought the young tory cohort coming through in 2015 looked like they had the number of really good names that have now had to fall by the wayside for the sort of internal conservative fights over brexit in particular people like amber rudd for example it seems that there's a whole a whole lot of potential and learning and experience has been torched and they're starting from scratch at the most difficult time that's a really interesting point Let's look at what happens now. Um, Giles, to come straight back to you, from the public's point of view, it's all about energy bills, isn't it? Is this what's going to make or break the trust premiership? I think it will certainly characterise the first few months. And I think they're in an almost impossible position in that the affordable ideas um, and affordable, goodness knows how you even define that. But if the briefing's correct and they're looking to freeze bills at around £2,500, these are still levels at which people on even a mild winter are going to feel incredible financial hardship right the way up the bottom half of the income distribution. And um, I mean, £2,500 is the sort of amount that would have given us an absolute nightmare if we were thinking about it when we introduced the energy price cap in 2017 or 18. We would have thought the government is going to be on the hook for this and everybody's going to be waving their energy bills at social media and blaming us for it. And there is going to be actual real hardship. I mean, this is the sort of level that far smaller amounts were protested about in the COVID, COVID times. And it will be very, very hard to get it right first time as well. There will be lots of edge cases and boundary issues and companies that aren't included enough or people who've already fixed their bills and then are wondering why they had to have it all changed. There's going to be so many implementation issues to deal with. And we've got a brand new chancellor and a brand new business secretary to do it. So I think the chances of actually getting it right and first time and navigating the politics of it are very, very low. And um, it, it, you, can't, you can't even necessarily blame her for it. Although I do think that the work should have started through the summer and that Boris Johnson was incredibly irresponsible in not giving the green light to just get on with starting to think about it in July, because this is not something you can roll out in a week. Salma, let's talk about this um, fabled fiscal event, which we're going to have. Um, do you really think she's going to go ahead without an ABR forecast? And does that matter? Um, I think there's a strong possibility that she'll go out, uh, ahead without an OBR f- forecast. I think it's terrible to do that um, because she needs to have some credibility around the numbers uh, because otherwise the criticism of her sort of fairy tale and fantasy economics will um, be doubled. And I think that really does become the narrative and she can't avoid that because people like me who – I, I'm, I'm skeptical about tax cuts and, you know, I, I even thought, okay, you know, 
that there's that 30 billion of headroom, you know, just before the, the sort of cataclysmic inflation predictions came in, you know, which evaporated that headroom that she was going to pay for tax cuts with. So people like me who want to believe that she has a plan for growth, I do want that substantiated by numbers. Um, and she's going to lose a lot of that goodwill, I think, if she doesn't produce them. Cass, how powerful is trust right now? And how long is that going to last? Uh, well, it might be that the honeymoon's already over. Uh, you know, we, we, there was some of the discussion we were sort of saying, is it up until the, you know, reshuffle and then you've got your enemies on the outside, you know. Um, reshuffle seems to have gone PMQs later today, that was another one. Um, look, she she is at, at the height of her, you know, current power. I mean, events notwithstanding, obviously she has a, you know, has a blinder she suddenly rises in the polls then you know she's in a lot better position with her party so she has to be conscious that there's a risk that it's downhill from here um and particularly in terms of party handling that's 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 pretty important uh, and i think that is reflected in in the reshuffle that we've seen thus far not just uh, the cabinet but also in number 10 she has very much put her stamp on it decided to do it her way um we were sort of, you know, one of the things that our colleague Alex and I were sort of saying was, if you're going to make hard choices in number 10, now is the time to do it. She's done that. She's possibly not done the hard choices we might have been thinking were the sensible ones to do, but she, she's definitely done that. So she is powerful right now. I think a big test will be PMQs later today, particularly given what we said that, um, you know, communication isn't her, her strong point. That in itself might work because um, it's very hard for somebody who has been facing somebody as bombastic as Boris Johnson um, to then pivot mm. to face somebody where the tone is very different and there is a real list that you, you look like you're just bullying or, you know, acting like a prat if you're trying to make jokes and so forth. So I'm sure Labour have gamed quite a lot the, the Liz Truss style and how best to approach that. I suspect there'll be a relatively serious um, tone to it Um Later certainly on. more of a focus on detail, I would think. Under, yeah, under I think so. I think so. Because also that is the point. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, we're talking about obviously energy price cap. That is the, the policy that Labour have been pushing. So really, it's kind of, you know, depends on what happens in the next few days and weeks um, in terms of how she then uses what power she currently has, both with the party uh, exerting herself over um, a over, over government and also, you know, thinking about how she builds a relationship with the public, given that she's, if, if her speech is to be believed, ruled any, you know, any election out until 2024. And some, uh, some big names are now out of government, um, some, including some people you've worked for. Mm. Um, what sort of contribution do you think the likes of Sajid Javid, Michael Gove, Grant Sharps will, will make to this government? Well, I think that's very sort of uh, dependent uh, on their personalities. Uh, I don't imagine uh, Michael Gove or Grant Shapps will uh, be particularly quiet or particularly supportive on the backbenches. You know, they'll probably give her a bit of time. Um, but, you know, given that Michael Gove wrote in the Times about how she was totally mad, I mean, I paraphrase, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think... Um, that's going to be a really easy ride. And also he's just, he's a really big character. Um, uh, and people, he probably has a lot more sort of um, 
uh, recognition from the average person uh, than possibly even Liz Truss, you know, before now. So I don't imagine he's going to be um, subtle with his criticism. Um, people like Sajid, you know, even though he's had two spells on the back benches, uh, you know, having stood against prime ministers, um, I actually think he'll probably try and be as loyal as possible uh, because it is so, so grave. Uh, I don't know, you know, who knows what might happen. You don't know that these people might at some point return to cabinet because one thing that we do know is that the uncertainty of recent years means that there are a lot more iterations. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that this is the iteration of cabinet that's going to take us to the election. Mm. And I have to say, I did find it very notable some or other briefing I read yesterday after the cabinet was appointed, or maybe it was newspaper this morning, where a cabinet minister, I assume of the new crop, had said, oh, I don't see her lasting two years. So I find it extraordinary. (laughs) I know. (laughs) No, please, God. (laughs) I think this is the really interesting thing for the Conservative Party. And Salma, I'd be interested in your view on it. Like, what's the sort of you know, mentality now of where you go, because like you say, some of it is, it's a very grave situation. It is about the public interest. It's about what's right for the country supporting this trust to do that. For other people, it's like, can we bring it back before the next general election? How can we get ourselves to a different position? But presumably some in the party, so we've been hearing rumours, are already thinking, no, we're going back into opposition. So what are they fighting for? Is it the sort of future heart of the party? What's motivating people at the moment? I think there's a distinction between the professional party, the parliamentary party and the voluntary party. And I think you've got to keep that distinction really clear in your mind when you're thinking about this. And I think the voluntary party are sick to the back teeth of, of what's happened. And that is true for Westminster, where I'm a member in the association, you know, probably all the way through to Lincolnshire or Lancashire, you know. So um, the voluntary party are really sick of it because they are motivated uh, by the ideology and the position and, and what we think conservatism can do. I think the professional party is trying its best, level best, to, to maintain some kind of veneer of uh, competence and forward-looking, um, you know, plans and, you know, trying to keep the show on the road. And the parliamentary party, I think, are far, far, far too emotional and you know, switch with where, wherever the media is going. And that is in part, I think, driven by the fact that in 2019, as a consequence of all this kind of um, uh, bad blood that sort of threw loads of people out, you know, Giles just mentioned Amber Rudd, David Gork, Rory Stewart, all these people that were talents and represented the broadness of the Conservative Party. I think you've now got sort of very furtive, still very new people who've come in from 2017 and 2019 who um, sort of can't can't keep the, the 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 emotions under control. I mean, it's a terrible. It's it's a it's the wrong word, emotions. But it's the only thing that I can uh, summarize it with effectively. It's all become very personal. It's That's all personal, yeah. and I think the problem is going to be when that cohort that then is the top, which from where the cascade comes, uh, gets nervous about what's happening in the papers, and for pity's sake. Just stand your ground. She has to make it to the election. You know, I make I make no bones about it. I am a Tory, yeah. you know, ultimately. Uh, there are a lot of problems with Liz, but this is not just about a Tory prime minister succeeding. She has to succeed for all our sakes. I can't disagree with that. And that's... 
uh, it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Kath Haddon, Giles Wilkes, and of course to Salma Shah. Great to see you again on the pod. Now you've listened to this, head over to our sister podcast channel, IFG Live, and check out the recording of our expert IFG briefing from Tuesday, which took a fascinating or perhaps better described as terrifying dive into the Prime Minister's intray. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And with Deliver being the word of the week, please deliver us a review. And don't forget to visit our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a new paper out by our economics team looking at the difficult choices which new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng needs to face up to. And our live blog is packed with top analysis and brand new graphs and is constantly being updated by our tired, I mean, tireless team. Are we really only halfway through the week? (laughs) See you next time.